are doing a, a series right now called Consider Jesus, and so we're going to get into that. Uh, we started it earlier in the year, and we're going to continue with that. It's a, it's a journey through the book of Hebrews, one of the books of the Bible, and we love doing that because as a church, we are passionate about this message. We are passionate about the fact that God has got uh, this great news, this great gospel, this great redemption for all of us, and we don't want to be stuck and caught up making up our own religious ideas about who God is and how we're supposed to serve Him, uh, we want to we follow the truth. We want to walk in the truth, and, and we want to know God's grace that transforms our hearts. And this message that we have is, it's not about programs. It's not about principles. It's not about trying really hard to be very good. Uh, it's about stepping into a relationship with a person called Jesus. Stepping into a relationship with a person called Jesus, allowing His grace and His presence in your life to transform you from the inside out. And that's what we see. We've got something so real. We've got a vital connection where Jesus takes up residence on the inside of us, and, and He works on the inside of us. And so as we've been journeying through the book of Hebrews together, uh, if you're visiting today, we've got all the messages we've done previously in this series up on our SoundCloud account. You can just go to soundcloud.com and find Anchor Church Joburg there. It's also on our website. It's on iTunes, any platform that you can think of. Um, you can find us there, and, 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 and what you'll see is, is that God has spoken so powerfully uh, through the person of Jesus. The book of Hebrews calls us to consider Jesus, to consider Jesus. We've looked at uh, Hebrews 3. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews 9. But before we go to Hebrews 9, um, I want to go to, to Hebrews 3 uh, just for a moment. And uh, in Hebrews 3... We see how it, it says the following. It says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. You who share in a heavenly calling. If God is in your life, if He has reached into your life, if He is working in your heart this morning, then what we want you to do, what God wants us to do, is consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed him. Really, the meaning of Christianity is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. It really is all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done for us on the cross, what he has secured for us through his sacrifice, through his obedience, through his willing uh, desire and, and sacrifice and action to save every single one of us. Christianity is a lot more about what has been done as opposed to what we're supposed to do, especially when it comes to how we're saved or how we stay saved. It's about believing in what Jesus has already done. It's about taking hold of a finished work and appropriating it, allowing, allowing the Holy Spirit to implement it to our lives and living from that platform. So in essence, what the Hebrews 1 says to us is that Jesus is everything that God has ever wanted to say. Have you ever wondered what God would want to say to you in your life, what God would want to reveal to you, what He would say to those that are in rebellion, what He would say to those that are in brokenness, what He would say to those who are in confused? Essentially, the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is everything that God has ever wanted to say, and that's why Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. The word angel, angelos, means messenger. And Jesus is a better messenger than any message that's ever been shared, brought by a better messenger that's ever been sent. Because it wasn't just an angel. He's not just an angel, but the Son of God himself arrived to deliver the message and then also to put that message into action. 
So Jesus is God's remedy for our world. He is the hope of the world. He is the answer of God to our rebellion and our sin. He is everything that we could ever need, and that's why he offers us a better deal. If you want to sum up the book of, the book of Hebrews, it's that Jesus is better. He's better than the law. He's better than religion. He's better than the Old Testament covenant. He, he, he offers better promises. His message is better than any message. Jesus is absolutely better in every single way. And that's what we've been looking at over these last eight weeks as we've traveled through Hebrews 1 to 8. And so today, uh, we are going into Hebrews 9. So you can just go from where you were in Hebrews 3. And I'm going to share a message with you entitled, Consider Jesus Better Than Religion. Better Than Religion. Consider Jesus Better Than Religion. Uh, Hebrews 9 shows us, before I read it, we can, we can go there in a moment, but before I read it, Hebrews 9 shows us all of the religious rules and, and regulations of the Old Testament and, and of the tabernacle and all the artifacts and all the rites and what the priests had to do and the first section of the tabernacle or the, later the temple and the second section and, and all the different artifacts that were in there, all of which represent what Jesus would do. All of those things were only a foreshadowing, a rumor, a, 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 an idea, a clue about the full picture that Jesus would do, of what Jesus would do for us and accomplish for us. So the Old Testament, when you read it, because I've been you know, doing my year plan, I don't know how many of you do a year plan where you read the Bible through in a year, but you read you know, four or five or six chapters a day, and um, it involves some of the, the history books and, and, uh, and, the, and the wisdom books and the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And as you read through it, um, I've specifically been going through the book of Numbers at this point, and you read through some of those things, and, 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 and you read of all the regulations and the rules and the, and the rights, and you're thinking, if somebody was a new Christian and they had to read this up front, like it could scare them off. Like this is some hectic stuff, what all those rules and those regulations were. And so many times what we do as Christians in the New Testament, we don't read the rest of the book. We, we kind of start our Bible reading where you think you should start in Genesis, and Genesis goes well. It's got great stories and some great things that God does. And then you get into Exodus, and things get a little bit more complicated. And before you know it, you're into, into Numbers and Leviticus and, 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 and Deuteronomy and all these kinds of books. And, and you start to see the, the law being laid out, and, and, and we kind of, for a lot of us, our Bible reading kind of slows down a little bit there because it's so much to tie and take in. But we don't continue reading. We don't continue moving into the New Testament. And we don't understand how the Old Testament works and can only be understood in the light of the New Testament. It is the New Testament uh, uh, revealed. Or the, the, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. It's all in there, but you can only understand it with the proper lighting. If you walked in, ever walked into a dark room and kind of like fallen over a couch or a chair, it's like you know it's there, but you don't know exactly how it works or where it is. And until the light shines on it, then it's understood. It, it's, it's in its proper place, and you see where it stands, and, and you know how to work with it. And that's how the Old Testament, that's what it looks like. And all the rules and the rituals and the, and the rites in the Old Testament, what the New Testament tells us, those things were only a copy, a foreshadowing, an idea, a clue, a rumor, uh, a foretelling of what Jesus would accomplish on our behalf. And so one of the worst things that we can do is try and take the Old Testament and just copy and paste things without taking them through the cross. Everything in the New Testament, everything in our new covenant, everything that we live gets filtered through the cross. I don't want to work to accomplish one single thing that Jesus already accomplished through the cross. 
Because the moment I do that, I make myself my Savior rather than putting my faith in the Savior. You see, when Jesus saves us, He doesn't just save us from our sins, but He saves us from other saviors, from looking to other things, including, and most importantly, ourselves, in order to be our own saviors. And that's ultimately what the Pharisees were working for. If they could take the law and apply it perfectly, they could save themselves. And when Jesus arrived, the Bible says that they did not want to submit to the righteousness which came from God because they wanted to establish their own righteousness. I don't want to be saved. I want to save myself. And that's why people, we actually have a deep affinity for the law. We have a deep affinity for religion because we want to work for our own salvation. And so grace and the message of God saving us by his free gift, by his son dying on the cross, is one of the most offensive messages to our flesh because it means death to self. It means that there's nothing I can stand before God with one day and say, God, look at me. Look at how well I behaved. Look at how well I did. Look at how I obeyed your law and I, and I followed all your rules and I followed all your rituals. God, surely I will be saved because of what I have done. The Bible says no flesh will ever boast in the presence of God. There is nothing that we can claim as being of ourselves. I cannot stand before God and say that there is one good thing that comes from me. If there is anything good within me, it's by His grace. It's by His presence. It's by His work in my heart. And this is kind of what Hebrews 9 shows us. It shows us how those regulations and rights were only a copy and a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. The Old Testament, therefore, looks a lot like bookkeeping, like doing your taxes. It can get so complicated. Maybe it's not complicated for you. Maybe we've got some accountants here this morning. We love our accountants. You're a special breed of person. We pray for you every day. I don't know how you do what you do, but I'm not one of those guys. And so I just start looking at taxes, and I just start looking at accounting and those kinds of things, and, 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 and it's just so much to do, so much to remember, so, much, so many logistics. And so God in the Old Testament literally set up the system of approaching him with all of these artifacts and all of these different rituals and rules, and when we read about them, we can kind of switch off. We can kind of just skip. Have you skipped some pages in the Bible? It's like, you know, all these rules and stuff. You just kind of skip that stuff. But actually, there was so much beauty in the full picture of the gospel in terms of what God was doing. So I'm going to encourage you this morning to stick with me a little bit, not to switch off as I read this, but just to look at how these things, and I'm only going to read these first seven verses in Hebrews 9, but just to show how these things were a copy and a foreshadowing of what was to come. Hebrews 9, verse 1 to 7 says, Now even the first covenant... The first covenant is the Old Testament. It's the covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with the people of Israel. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, a physical place. For a tent was prepared, which was the tabernacle, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So all these artifacts that, that God instructed Moses to put in place. Behind the second curtain, was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak 
now speak in detail, and I'm going to kind of reiterate that message for us here at Anchor Church. I would love to go into what every single one of these artifacts meant and what it represents, and, and, but when you start doing that, you end up with a Bible school course that's going to take several months for us to just break down how every one of these artifacts represents the gospel, how it represents Jesus, how it represents heaven, how it represents our standing before God. It is incredibly powerful, and unfortunately, I don't have the time this morning to go into all the detail about it, but just want to tell you that go and do the study. Go and look at what the artifacts of the temple meant and how they specifically pointed to Jesus and to our new covenant. But we don't have the time to speak of these in detail. Verse 6 says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood from a sacrifice which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins and then go before God once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices with blood sprinkled on the mercy seat as a, a way of, of, of appeasing God's wrath for judgment for sin that the people were guilty and they needed to be made right with God. And the high priest had this job of representing the people and everything they had done wrong and going before God in order to, to seek his mercy. And this is an Old Testament copy. This is an Old Testament plan, an Old Testament idea. And uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about how Jesus fulfilled all of these things and how we can consider him better than religion this morning. But before we do that, won't you go ahead and just bow your heads, just close your eyes, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are with us, God that you are faithful, that you are true, that you have accomplished everything we could never accomplish for ourselves, God. All the things that we could not have earned or worked for or achieved, Lord. Father, thank you that we are made righteous this morning by our faith in Christ Jesus, God. Thank you that we can look to you as the author and the finisher of our faith, our salvation, and the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. We thank you, God, that we do not have to get stuck in religion, but we can have a relationship with you as the living God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. So um, the thing about us as people is that we have this tendency to overlook our shortcomings. Have you ever kind of tried to, and you know, we can kind of see it in each other, and if you have somebody that really loves you and they kind of want to be honest with you, they'll sit down with you and go, hey, you know, I just I, you know, there's something you just need to be aware of. There's something that, that we just, we love you. You know, you start, when somebody starts, you know, the sandwich method, say something nice up front, then hit them with the truth, then say something nice afterwards. You're great. We love you. We think you're awesome. You're doing such a great job. We just want to quickly say that in this area, we have some concerns, but you're awesome and you're great. It's called the sandwich method. method. Feel free to use it anytime. Um, but, but when you kind of sit down with people, you often find out that, that we have a tendency, we have a blind spot, all of us, where we overlook our shortcomings and we misappropriate our goodness. I haven't yet come across a person, if you come to them and you say, are you a good person? Because what kind of a person says, no, no, I'm, I'm absolutely not a good person. Like all of us know that we have got longings or intentions in our heart to be good. And so we will kind of just cover over all the things that we might have done wrong and not actually factor that into the equation of our answer. And we'll just say, yeah, I believe I'm a good person. A lot of people falsely believe that it's good people that go to heaven. And so they say, are you going to heaven? They'll say, well, I think I'm a good person. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Everybody would admit to that, but I'm not Hitler. You know, that's kind of like the... 
It's like, but that is a very minimum standard you're giving yourself there. You know, like, oh, so you haven't killed six million people. Okay, so you're fine, you know, like. And so we kind of do that, and, um, and, and I thought about how it's like, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been on a diet or on an eating plan, um, and you're so determined to eat healthy, and so you wake up in the morning, and you have your eggs and your, your fat-free plain yogurt, and uh, a little bit later, you'll have a handful of peanuts with some boiled chicken and steamed vegetables for lunch, and then in the evening, you will have a light salad with, with no dressing for dinner, and then you'll follow that up with um, three boxes of biscuits, a packet of chips, a bowl of ice cream, and some jelly tots that you found in the couch. Um, can I have an amen for the couch jelly tots? And then when people come to you and ask, so how's the eating plan going? You forget about everything that happened after 8 p.m. And you say, it's going so great. It's going, man, I'm eating my chicken. I'm eating my vegetables. You know, I'm, I'm, you know no sugar during the day for the most part. I mean, just watch this space. I'm going to be lean and mean in no time. We completely overlook how badly we actually eat at certain points or what we've added to our food until you actually start getting one of those apps or you start writing down what you've actually eaten in the day. And all of a sudden, the reality hits you that you're, you're actually not doing as great as you thought you were doing. And, 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 and the same goes for if somebody ever asked you if you ever swear a lot or if you say words that you shouldn't say or if you use bad language in, in traffic. And, and most of us would say, not at all. Not at all. Like, I, I never use any bad words. Okay, maybe occasionally. Okay, maybe every now and again when I'm really tired and, and I'm in traffic and I get cut off by a taxi, but it's so seldom. And then they say, but your kids used bad language at school the other day. And you're like, no, no, no. They didn't hear it from me. Any parents that have claimed that they didn't hear it from you. It must be that other brat in their class. I know, I know the kid. I know the kid. It's his bad language that's influencing my beautiful and, and very good boys. Um, or girls, and so, and so it definitely doesn't start with me. And how many of you have ever t tested that logic with a swear jar, right? Any of you ever have one of these in the office or in the home? Um, a swear jar, the idea behind a swear jar. Hey, Will, can you open this up? I'm going to break this jar. There we go. So the idea with a swear jar is that every single time you say a bad word, and a lot of officers, if they're trying to curb the bad language or in homes, parents have sometimes used this, that if they use a bad language or a bad word, imagine if every time you used a bad word, you would have to put 100 rand in the jar. That's kind of the idea. You, you say a bad word, you drive in traffic, you say something, you, know, you look over to your wife, she's like, that's 100 bucks in the jar. That's 100. I'm buying shoes at the end of this month, you know? <laughs> The idea is, is that if you had to pay every single time you used a bad word, you might realize that you're using bad words more than you thought, that you actually have a tendency. You've just overlooked how often you do that. But let's say, for example, that this wasn't a swear jar, but a sin jar, all right? Let's say that you had a jar that you would put, some, put 100 rand into every time you sinned. Every time you did something that, that God doesn't want us to do, that's not in accordance with his will, that's not God's heart, um, literally every time you're selfish, right? You're selfish, that's 100 rand in the jaw, okay? You're self-centered, that's 100 rand in the jaw. You're unloving or unforgiving, that's another 100 rand in the jaw, right? You, uh, you're greedy, 
You're greedy, another hundred rand in the jar because you're greedy. You're impatient, come on, another hundred rand in the jar. You're prideful, you're prideful, another hundred rand in the jar. Just imagine if you had an actual jar like this. You're dishonoring, you're unfaithful, you say a bad word. I'm just trying to think what else. You're You're dishonest. Say again. Amazing, this came with a jacket, you won't believe it, but you're bad-tempered, you get angry, and you sin in your anger. All these things, we would just be constantly putting money into the jar. Every single day, we would, we would fill up a jar every day. But when I ask you, so how is your walk with God? How's, you know, how's God working in your heart? Are you, do you feel like you're progressing? you feel like you're maturing? You're like, I'm, I'm so good. I, I can't even remember the last time I sinned. Really, should we get a sin jar? So you just lied, okay? You just lied. Put some money in. You were just honest, dishonest, and prideful about yourself. Put some more money in there, right? Think about how much money we would put in here. Ultimately, what would happen is that before we know it, we would be completely broke. Before we would know it, we would have put every single last cent that we have. There's nothing left in the jar. That's ultimately our human position. We're broke. We're broke. I don't have enough money. I couldn't get hold of enough money to put into the jar. I could never pay or make up for my sin. And this is why God gave us the law and gave us the Old Testament religious rules and regulations because it was like a very complicated and intricate form of a sin jar. That every time the people of Israel or the people of God sinned, they would have to go and pay a price. In fact, when they made the sacrifice, they would have to lay their hands on their own animal and and, and actually experience the life slipping from that animal as they felt the very effects of their own sinfulness so that nobody could be in any doubt about the fact that they were sinners who needed a savior. That was the intention of the Old Testament, what God was trying to illustrate to the people in giving them the laws and giving them the tabernacle and the regulations of worship is that they could understand that no person can stand before God in his own strength, that nobody has enough to pay the price, to make up for what we had done, for where we had fallen short. All of us, the scripture says, have fallen short of the glory of God. And so even the high priest, even the high priest who gave his life in the service of the temple, even when he went before God and he said, right, I'm ready, I've got all of, I've got my, my high priest garments on, I've got my ritual cleansings, I've, uh, yeah, I've fasted, I've prayed, I'm ready for this day of atonement. But before I go in, God, here's mine, here's my, I'm just going to quickly make sacrifice for my own sins before I make uh, a prayer for the, for, the, for the sins of the rest of Israel. Even the high priest had to offer offer sacrifice for his own sin before he could go before God. And God was making it very clear to all of us through all these things that we read in the Old Testament that none of us can save ourselves by good living. If you don't believe me, try this. See if you have any money left at the end of the week. Just try it and see. 
We cannot be made right with God by our own efforts. We need a savior. That's what God was telling us and that's what he was foreshadowing. Religion with all of its rules therefore only stands to condemn us. Religion only condemns. Following the Old Testament law is a ministry, the the second Corinthians says, of death and of condemnation. If you want to experience condemnation and death, follow the law. It will reveal your death. It will reveal the, 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 the sinfulness within you. It will highlight our spiritual and moral bankruptcy. If I paid every cent I ever made and did all I ever could, the truth is I owe too much and I could never pay for my own sins. I could never pay what I would have owed. In my own life, I didn't know this for a very long time. I was religious. I served God under that ministry of condemnation and as a result, constantly felt condemned. Makes sense, doesn't it? I constantly felt like I wasn't good enough. I constantly felt like I needed to make up for, I would spend the first 20 minutes of every hour that I prayed apologizing for everything I had done wrong, thinking that God couldn't even begin to hear me before I had made every single confession. And then the problem is when you confess so much, you can't remember what you've done wrong. If you haven't actually kept the list, I would be like, God, and also just forgive me for the stuff I don't actually even remember I did wrong or that I might have done wrong or that things I I shouldn't have done that I did do or didn't do that I should have done. You know, just whatever it is, God, just, you know, the sins of omission and commission. And I mean, I would would repent. I waste so much time where I could be connecting with God because, because I thought that my relationship, I never had confidence. I thought that I was just not able to really stand before him. His, I didn't believe that I had done enough to earn his favor and his involvement in my life and, and, and that I thought that my relationship with God was completely dependent upon my own goodness, my ability to do what's right. And so I never had complete confidence before God. I always felt that no matter how hard I tried, I wasn't quite good enough. And I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way. You know, there's some people that are just so honest that they just don't come to church because they're like, I know I don't have what it takes. I know I'm not living the right way. And a lot of people say to me, I'll invite them to church and they'll say, let me just sort my life out first and then I'll come to church. It doesn't work that way. We can't do that. You'll never come to church. We come as we are and we engage through faith with the finished work of the cross and all of a sudden that righteousness gets imputed and we begin to change. You come to Jesus and then you change. You don't change and then come to Jesus. Because if you could change yourself, you wouldn't need to come to Jesus. And so I could never have something the Bible actually speaks surprisingly often when it speaks about a clear conscience. That our conscience could be clear before God, that we could be, have confidence before Him. It's like when you were in school or maybe recently when you were in the office and you, you, you and a group of friends spoke badly about a fellow student or a fellow coworker. Anybody ever do that? None of you, just me. We do have some honest people. A hundred rand in this, and it's okay. <laughs> but you speak badly about somebody, and then all of a sudden they walk into the room and they're like, hey guys. And you're like, hey, how are you? So good to see you. You look great this morning. And just like, you have no confidence before them, and you don't even know how to relate to them properly anymore because you've just said bad things about them. It affects the relationship, and you're trying, to, you're trying your best to hide the fact that you are guilty. How about this one? How many of you have ever owed somebody money? 
for whatever reason, I don't want to know the details, but you owed somebody money, and then you're walking through the mall, and you saw them coming in the opposite direction. And you duck into the nearest store and like hide behind the clothing rails, like literally waiting for them to leave. I've done this before. I remember when I was younger and I put blinds up in my house and it was like really at the limit to stretch my budget right to the end. And I had just a month, a much, uh, enough money that month to pay for those blinds, but it was going to really hurt. And, and then the company that put in the blinds, they never sent me the invoice. And so I thought, okay, this is great. Maybe I can have an extra month before I have to pay it and they'll send it later and then it's their fault. It's their, you know, it's their logistical team. It's not my fault. It's not on me, you know, um, convincing myself. And, uh, and so I sat there and I was like, uh, that's great. And then for two or three months, they didn't send me an invoice. I'm like, man, I got free blinds. Some of you are wondering whether I should be your pastor or not. <laughs> At this point, it's like, <laughs> like, I got free blinds. It's amazing. And then I was, uh, but, but, you know, I knew who the guy was who came and put the blinds in, and I could have called him and said, hey, your company hasn't sent me an invoice, but I thought, you know what, this money, I really need it, and so I'm just going to see what happens, and maybe I'll pay it one day, maybe I'll pay it later on, and, uh, and then I was sitting in the church office, and we just built uh, a new section, and I had a new office, and I was sitting in there, and they got somebody to bring blinds in and, and, uh, and to put blinds in, and all of a sudden, the guy that I owed money to walked into my office. And you know what? I had such a guilty conscience. The first thing I said was, hi, I owe you money. <laughs> it's like, I just need to get this off my chest. I owe you money. I'll, I'll sell what I have right now. I'll give you the money. Just please let my conscience be appeased. The fact is, is that when you know that you're in debt, you cannot have peace. When you know that you're in debt, you cannot have peace, especially with the person to whom you owe the money. There's something that stands between you and stands between your relationship. It's why they say you should never borrow money from family because families have been ruined that way because the debt produces division. And our debt to God produced division. It separated us from Him. And so a lot of people feel that way about God. Like me with the guy with the blinds, I saw him actually walking around from the window. I was like, please don't come in here. Please don't come in here. I owe this guy money. Please don't come in here. And some people are like that with God. God, please don't come in here. I owe you. I know I owe you. I know I haven't lived right. Please don't come in here, God. Please don't, please don't come in here. They look at church and they think, why would I voluntarily go in there when I know I owe money? When I know that I'm guilty. How can I make up for what I've done? I, I can't go in there. I don't have what it takes. And so Hebrews 9, 9, and this whole chapter of Hebrews shows us what Jesus did for us on our behalf. Hebrews 9, verse 9 says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. So according to the Old Testament, according to religion, according to the rules and the rights and the, and the regulation, gifts and sacrifices are offered, listen to this, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You see, it doesn't matter how religious you are. Let's just keep that scripture up there for a moment. I'll get back to it right now. But it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how often you come to church. It doesn't matter how much money you put into the offering. It doesn't matter how many connect groups you join. It doesn't matter how, how, how much you give away to the poor. It doesn't matter. All of those things, uh, when they are done religiously, cannot possibly perfect your conscience before God. Because if you had to weigh up your good versus your bad, 
the bad outweighs the good, 20 to 1, 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1. You cannot do enough good things to outweigh the sin in your life. And so it says that all these Old Testament gifts and sacrifices that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of redemption. Do you know what I love about that word redemption? You know what I love about the word redeem? It literally means to buy back. It literally means until the time that Jesus comes and he pays the price. And he puts the money in here that you could not put in here. So the Old Testament reminded us that we needed to pay and we needed to pay and we needed to pay. But it only reminded us until the time where God would pay it all through his son called Jesus. Through the sacrifice of the cross. No matter how much money we try and cram in the, do- in the jar, we cannot possibly clear our conscience before God. Religion cannot make us right with him. It can only highlight that we aren't right with him. Which is why the gospel, the message that Jesus paid the price, is the best news we will ever hear. It's the greatest message that humanity has ever heard. And so the message of the Bible isn't one of religion. It's the good news of a God who paid for our redemption. Redemption over religion. Redemption over religion. He pays the price, and we receive what he has done by faith. And it becomes our redemption. The grace of God. God making us right with him without us having to do a single religious thing. I love what Robert Capon says about this when it comes to Christianity and religion. He says, Christianity is not a religion. It is the announcement of the end of religion. Religion consists of all the things the human race has ever thought it had to do to get right with God. Everything religion tried and failed to do has been perfectly done once and for all by Jesus in his death and resurrection. For Christians, therefore, the entire religion shop has been closed, boarded up and forgotten. The church is not in the religion business. It it has never been and will never be. So if you're here at Anchor Church, we're not here to enlist you in another religion. We're here to introduce you to a God who paid the price for your soul. All of a sudden, Jesus arrives. The promise of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the word of God become flesh. He arrives and he fulfills our redemption. And the Bible says that when he paid that price, he paid it once and for all. No more price left to be paid. It wasn't just a deposit. In fact, it was an overpayment for your sin. Jesus Jesus filled that jar until it cracked and there was no more jar. He couldn't pay another cent. He had given everything, an overpayment for sin. That's why the scriptures tell us that where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more because of what he paid. And 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 it opens up our conscience before God. It clears our conscience. The price is paid. Imagine if you owed somebody a debt and somebody else phoned you and said, hey, we've paid your debt. Now you would walk in the mall and see the person that you once owed money to and you'd go up to them and ask them how their day has been because your conscience is clear. We get to go up to God now. We get to have that relationship. We get to have fellowship. We get to come here on a Sunday and worship 
because the debt has been paid. There's no longer anything that stands between us and him. There's no more guilt. There's no more fear. We can serve him wholeheartedly. We can, we can obey him. We can follow his voice. We can have fellowship and friendship with God because our price has been paid. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, so when Jesus became our sacrifice, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Jesus, through his blood, saves us from something, our dead works, and to something even greater, a relationship with the living God. How much more can we just worship and serve and be joyful and give and trust and believe and and be at peace and be at rest in our lives knowing that Jesus, through his blood, paid the price? He purifies our conscience before God. 1 John 3, 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if our conscience does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You see, it requires you knowing the gospel to know that you are no longer condemned. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now, therefore, now, because of what Jesus has done, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation for your life. When we walk in condemnation, condemnation leads us into sin. It breaks our trust in God, our confidence before Him, and it actually causes us to rebel. But when you know that there is no condemnation over your life, that Jesus has paid the price, then you live for God. You give everything for God. Because you know He's given everything for you. Hebrews 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near. Let us draw near. I love that. Let's let's get closer to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, when the priests went into the temple, and we see this in Hebrews 9, that under the old covenant, when the priests went into the temple, they had to take blood from the sacrifice and literally sprinkle it on every artifact. The entire first court and the first area had to be sprinkled, the holy place. And then into the holy place, that blood had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And this was all a picture of how Jesus, through his blood, would sprinkle our hearts and purify. It was a way of making holy purify our conscience before God. That's why the scripture, when it refers to people, even those that are struggling, even when Paul writes to the Corinthians who are caught up in various things, he still calls them holy. Holy means to be separated and redeemed for use by God, and your life is holy even when you mess up. It's who you are in Christ. It's an identity and before it becomes an action. We live in holiness, but we are holy before Christ. So we have our hearts sprinkled, purified, cleansed from an evil conscience because of what Jesus has done, the washing of pure water, the water of the word, the water of the gospel. Hebrews 9.15 says, therefore, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. Not the Old Testament, not the religious testament, not the, not the covenant that had the law and, and, and people trying to get right with God through the tabernacle and, and through the religious rites, but a new covenant. And Jesus himself 
is now our tabernacle. He is now our way and truth and life. He now is our way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is everything the Old Testament was telling us we needed. He gave us that access. And he gives us this access to God under the new covenant of grace. Between that holy place and most holy place in the tabernacle and in the temple was a curtain. They say that curtain was at least an inch thick. Imagine a curtain that's like that thick. And this separated people from the most holy place because as sinners, they couldn't go into God's presence. It would literally be their death. To stand in God's presence being sinners and and unredeemed. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain that kept sinners from the presence of God was torn in two. And the Bible tells us it wasn't just torn in two, but it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. In other words, nobody could have torn it. It was God who tore it. Nobody could make us and give us access into his holy place, into his presence, that the presence of God that was here this morning, that we sometimes take for granted, that we get to just have fellowship and go right into the throne room of God without, without ever having to make a sacrifice in order to get there. It's because Jesus tore the veil in two and gave all of us access to the presence of God. Why do you have God's presence in your life? Why do you have the Holy Spirit resident, taking up residency on the inside of you? He's not just up in heaven or drifting around the world somewhere. He lives within you. Why is that possible? Because Jesus tore the curtain in two. Because Jesus paid the price so that we can have access to God. And all the elements of the tabernacle, all the things that we read about represent this redeemed relationship that we have with God. And as I said earlier, I don't have time to run through all the artifacts and specifically what they represent, but let me give you one example, the altar of incense. The altar of incense that stood in the most holy place. Incense in the Old Testament was was symbolic of prayer. In Psalm 141, one of the the Psalms I've been reading this week, David actually writes about this in Psalm 141 and verse 2. Um, where he actually says, let my prayer be as incense before you, God. Let my prayer be as incense. In other words, let let the smoke, let the fragrance of our prayers arrive in God's presence. You see, our prayers were on the other side of the curtain. We couldn't just pray and have God hear us and have him answer us. God cannot hear the, the prayers of people that are unredeemed. He cannot answer. But when Jesus tore the curtain, When we now pray, the scriptures are very specific about this, that your prayers are instantly heard by God. So you can have confidence in your prayer life. You can have confidence in your walk with God because when you need something, the Bible says that we are to boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. We live in the throne room of God. We live in his presence and our prayers are before him. We can have full assurance that he hears us because there's nothing that stands between us and him any longer. So I want to tell you this morning that you can have a relationship with Jesus that is so much better than religion. You can experience God's love. You can walk with him. You can hear his voice. You can have fellowship. You can obey. You can serve. You can fulfill every single thing that God has called you to do. Why? Because he has paid the price. He has fulfilled the requirements of the law. And so there is also nothing 
that stops God from blessing you and loving you and helping you because all that there is left for God to be unto us is, is loving and gracious and kind and faithful. It's who he is. He doesn't have to exclude you from a single thing that he has for your life because Jesus paid the price. Some of you are still struggling to believe that God would love you, that God would be faithful to you, that God would want to help you, that God would want to speak to you. Like, why would God speak to me? He, you know, he speaks to pastors and to prophets, but definitely not me. I'm, I'm just here in my day job, and I'm just kind of going through life. I don't think God would speak to someone like me. The scriptures are clear. He does. You're his child. He paid a price for you. He paid a price for you. He paid the highest price for you. He put all the money, everything he had into the jar so that he could have a reunited relationship with you. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what he did. So there's nothing that stops you from receiving everything that God has for you. Hebrews 9 verse 28 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Jesus is coming back. Not to deal with sin, because that's already been paid for, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I love that, that idea of eagerly waiting. It reminds me of when my boys were a little bit younger, and they would wait for me to get home from work, and they would stand at the gate. And the moment I arrived, they're like, Dad! And you know, the gate isn't even open yet, and they're running out. They're jumping on the side of the car. They're trying to climb through the window because they know that their dad loves them, and they love their dad. And that is how we await the second coming of Jesus. Not with fear, not with trepidation, not I hope I've done enough, I hope I've I followed all the rules, I hope I've been religious enough, I hope I gave enough, read enough, prayed enough, I hope I've done everything enough to, to actually be received and have a welcome from God. No, we stand eagerly waiting because we know we are right with him. He is our father, we are his children and we cannot wait to be in his arms. That's because Jesus is better than religion. He offers us a better way than the old covenant. It's a new covenant, and he is the mediator of it. He comes not to deal with our sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for, for him. And that's why this morning, I hope that you're convinced. And if you're not yet, I hope the Holy Spirit continues to convince you that Jesus is better than religion. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray together this morning.